It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. Come on. There we go. We should be live. In theory, we're live. Who can say? Who knows? Um, but we'll go. So yeah, so no sign of the guest today. Uh, looks like the power is out wherever she is. So I don't know what's going to happen because I think our, our docket is filled for the rest of the year. So we are, uh, we're stuck. So a special episode. I don't know. Um, and for people who are going to be joining me on Sunday night for the virtual star party, just remember that we're kicking it back one hour so that we don't try to use telescopes in the sunlight like we did last week. So we're going to start at 9 p.m. Pacific time, which I know is midnight. I'm sorry. I'm Canadian sorry that it's going to be very late at night. But you can always watch it later if you don't want to make requests live, which of, which is, of course, ridiculous So uh, because you want to be able to make requests. But we will uh, we'll get there. So um, I'm going to say hi to a bunch of people. Uh, hello to... Alex Bland, Andy Cowley, Benjamin Valmont, Bob Moeller, Bork Kleinkar, Brexit Denier, David Fairweather, Eric Schneider, Eric One, Ian Farkron, Johnny J, Larry King, Biscooper, Nancy Graziano, Paranor, Rich Wilson, Visto Tutti, and Zap Van Zap Van. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Uh, did you guys have a solemn uh, Memorial Day? No? I don't think we do that yet. No, you don't. We we no. <laughs> we do ours. We call it Remembrance Day. We do it in oh. in November on eleven 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 eleven. That's Veterans Day. Yeah, yeah you have the we same have thing. Two. Oh, you have two. Okay, well then, yeah. never mind. Yeah, we have mm-hmm. uh, we have BC Day. We just, we just call it British Columbia Day, and we have Victoria Day. I think that was the one that we had. Victoria Long Weekend was the was the similar holiday to your guys' Memorial Day. Um, don't forget Horizon Brave. Okay, Horizon Brave. David Dunn, Wayne Francis, Jay Hapgood, Christopher Senti, Geeks Vanna, Larry King, Scott Cox. And okay. All right. Well, let's get started then. <laughs> um, Joaquim. Yes, Alex Bland. Hello to Joaquin. All right. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about Meerkat, solving the mystery of X galaxies. Uh, what happened with today's Crew Dragon launch? Uh, stellar encounters in the Milky Way bulge. Uh, we may talk about toilets. And some other topics, so so stay tuned. This is going to be a this is going to be a little bit more of a more of a freeform show today. Uh, but joining me this week on my screen, I've got Annie Wilson. Annie, uh, we've got hello. Hello, um, we've got uh, Moya McTier. Moya, hi, good to be here. And we've got uh, Alan Versed. Alan, hi, nice to be back. Yeah. Hmm. All right, so before we get into these, this week's news stories, um, we're going to take a moment and give a huge thank you, of course, as always, to our good friends at the Weekly Space Hangout crew. This is the symbiotic relationship that we have with a great group of people who uh, really are the executive producers of the Weekly Space Hangout. So if you want to be more active and participate in in figuring out which guests will be on this show, if you want to talk to other space fans and obsess about the stories, especially during the dark times when we go into our summer break, which starts in about a month, uh, you're going to want to hang out with these people. So go to wshcrew.space and they will hook you up. All right, let's get into uh, this week's story. So the big story, of course, uh, Annie, Crew Dragon. What happened? Not today. <laughs> not, t- not, not today. today. Uh, Dr. Pamela shared a meme earlier with me. It was the meme from Game of Thrones. What do we say to the God of death? Not today. And that's essentially the story. We say not today to death. Um, there were all sorts of 
no-go weather conditions. I think what actually killed the launch was something about there. There's like 12 things that can cancel a launch, (laughs) but it was something about like electricity, the electric field in the air, not to mention that there were storms in Florida, uh, tropical, you know, a literal trop named tropical storm off the coast or yeah i mean it was we were going into the into the launch yesterday and the weather just looked awful and and it really looked like there was no way they were going to launch this but also people who spend any time in in florida know that you can have it can be a horrible thunderstorm and then suddenly it's clear skies an hour later and it's perfect launch conditions so they they ran that right to the last minute um did you watch the whole thing come together live as they were out on the out on the pad and and kind of yeah kind of they started coverage way earlier today and even though a rocket launched today, I still had other work to do. <laughs> yeah. So uh, meetings yeah. and then popped over to Pamela's house where she was talking to the news and I was running, you know, our simulcast and uh, I was able to see the swing arm pull back. Yeah. Yeah. And which was pretty like, oh no, this is really going to happen. They've pulled the swing arm back because yes. we were kind of hoping this would get scrubbed because we knew the weather conditions were so bad. And it was... T minus sixteen forty something when they finally did scrub it because if this was not an instantaneous launch window, if they could have that additional ten minutes, they might have been able to pull it off. But you need an instantaneous launch window when you're doing anything to the ISS because fuel is heavy. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was pretty funny to see um, like even President Trump flew in to be able to watch the launch and I, and you know, and my experience in trying to go and watch rockets take off is don't book your return flight. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like he has to book flights. Yeah. To be fair. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, even so, um, you know, if he wanted to watch a rocket take off, he better be prepared to just hang out in, uh, off the coast of Florida in the coast of Florida for, you know, a couple of days, maybe weeks. My my worst experience was to go see the space shuttle launch and the second to last launch of the space shuttle. And I was there for I think I was there. For, I had like 10 days that I'd given myself to be able to fly back. And even that didn't make it. And like, you know, back to the Cape. Nope, not today. Back to the Cape. Nope, not today. And then after a while, you're just like, no, this isn't going to happen. It's time to go home. You got to see the space shuttle, though. That was cool. So, yeah. Um, and other people, I saw other people had, like, even if people put their status, like, I'll be in Florida till the 29th. I'm like, oh, this is your first rodeo, isn't it? So, um, so for people who don't know what this is about, of course, what is what is Crew Dragon and, and why is this such a historic event? So this is the demo flight to Crew Dragon is literally SpaceX's uh, commercial answer to getting humans in space again. And it answers um, Bridenstine's whole American astronauts launched from American soil on American rockets. Yeah. And, and of course, the last time that this happened was back in 2011 with the space shuttle. I think yeah, so. It's, yeah. it's been a hot minute. And today, if yeah. they had launched today, it would have been a meaningful date for uh, SpaceX because it would have been an anniversary of one of the very first tests that they did to even get everything going. Right. So SpaceX really wanted it to happen today. They pulled out all the stops, dog and pony show, everything, but it didn't happen for the safety of the humans. Not today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in general, I mean, they, they can launch in various adverse weather conditions, but I think when you think about the, what happened with the various spatial, with the Challenger disaster, with the Columbia disaster, I mean, this rocket is really designed to solve a lot of the problems to bring, to make the whole thing safer. And yet... Um, it still is not without its risks. And so NASA being the safety culture that they are, they weren't going to take 
any chances uh, whatsoever. If it had launched, and maybe by this time next week we'll be talking about how it did successfully launch, um, what what should happen? What, what's expected to happen? If it had launched, the astronauts would be in flight to the ISS for 19 hours, almost a whole day to get there. That's... I think the Soyuz can do six hours, but the Soyuz has an advantage because the ISS is essentially aligned with their launch site and orbital mechanics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, they would have been hanging out 19, 19 hours, um, eating, drinking, sleeping, probably avoiding using the toilet. Uh, yeah, just literally hanging out. All right, so come on. You are a, an amateur uh, toilet aficionado, space toilet aficionado. Uh, d- what do you think uh, their toilet facilities are on, on Crew Dragon? So everybody's been, both SpaceX and NASA have been very secretive and will not, either cannot or will not answer questions about the Crew Dragon toilet. That's they so just funny. They, people have been asking questions for well over a month and you can't see fo- you can't see anything that looks like a toilet inside the craft you can't really see it in schematic drawings and in pictures above the astronaut's head is a panel the soyuz toilet is stored essentially in a panel behind the wall like a cabinet and i suspect this is the same kind of situation where it's not something you sit on. It's something you straddle, and it's just kept right. tucked away yeah. behind a panel. But, I mean, six hours in a Soyuz, you can kind of hold it. Maybe, you know, fill your diapers kinda. once. Yeah, maybe kinda. you do. No, probably not. You probably, you know, you're going to have some you'll, – you'll be all jacked up on coffee. You're probably going to need to go a couple of times as you as you wait. But 17 hours or 19 hours, yeah, you're, you're definitely going to have to use the facilities. Your body in microgravity, it only takes eight hours for your kidneys, for all the fluids to just go wherever they want to go because gravity is not keeping them where they should be. Oh, okay. So it takes about eight hours for your kidneys to go, um, we have extra fluid we need to drain fluid. and you you have to go. Let's but yeah, diapers. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, as far as solid human waste goes, they have a breakfast. It's a tradition for American astronauts to have a breakfast of steak and eggs the day of a launch and it's considered to be low residue meaning there's not a whole lot of waste to come out right so they do whatever they can to avoid using the facilities yeah yeah um so <laughs> Pomoya's just giggling <laughs> when I, I saw i saw a tweet earlier today uh, like an astronaut had posted a picture of steak and eggs and i didn't yeah. understand what that was for and now i get it and yeah yeah, that's that's part of their tradition. It's gone back many, many, many generations, and that is part of the low residue diet, so they don't have to use the facilities. Right. Um, all right. So it was scrubbed, um, so we won't get a chance to see this historic launch yet. Um, when do you have you been tracking when it when the next window opens up? Saturday or Sunday? Saturday. I had yeah both the launch window. Yeah. Stuff open and the weather still doesn't look great. Yeah. But we'll see. It can change. It can still change. So yeah, so. we're looking at Saturday 3:22 Eastern and then Sunday at pretty much exactly 3 p.m. Eastern. But in both cases they've got about a 60% chance of good condition. So Right. Yeah. So no, this is this is the it just goes on for weeks plan right now not to mention whatever i was actually i was pretty amazed that they got to the point today where they did pull back the arm with the with the astronauts on board that they did begin fueling up part of the rocket like i was not expecting i was expecting just any tiny little thing to to cause the the launch to hold but weather would do it yeah i i thought it was for sure going to happen when i saw that People um, have been arguing on the internet back. about about what this is, and you know, people have been saying like, "Well, it's not actually the the 
the last time astronauts have been off of the, or the first time astronauts have been off of U.S. soil because the, uh, you know, if you like specifically are talking about the the Kármán line getting across the whatever is the hundred kilometers, that in fact the uh, spaceship two did it like a year ago and took some yeah. people on a suborbital flight. So, I but I don't think that counts. I mean, it, it literally, there, oh my goodness, there are so many ways that an astronaut or somebody that has reached space is defined yeah. and it's all based on what the definition is for. If it's just for somebody to get getting to space, then yeah, like to get your astronaut wings or whatever. Yeah. It's, I think it's actually lower than a hundred yeah, kilometers. kilometers. Yeah. It might be. And yeah. that, again, that varies depending on institutions. Like the Air Force might have something or yeah. versus like the navies or NASA or whatever. And then not every person that we would have called an astronaut on the ISS is technically an astronaut. Yeah. Sometimes they're just spacefarers. Yes. Yeah. And things like that. Yeah, they, so cargo definitions are funny. Space. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, but I definitely feel, I mean, so how do you feel about this? Because it is a, a distinct change from in the olden days, NASA built rocket ships and it put its astronauts on its rocket ships and the astronauts went to perform missions in space. But in this case, it is, they are paying, uh, really a commercial flight on board a very custom built rocket precisely for NASA's needs that NASA paid for in pretty much every single way. But it is, you know, it is a commercial provider with what's happening with, with SpaceX. So is this the future? Do you think? I don't know. I kind of grew up during the shuttle program and always took that for granted. Not going to lie, always took it for granted. Yeah. Um, so I think this is better than nothing at all. Better than, and space, than having Russians launch your astronauts. It's better than not going to space at all. Yes. Um, and the good thing about having a commercial partner do this is that SpaceX isn't at the whims of Congress and budget cuts and things of that nature. There's no twisting of hands, worrying that, yeah. you know, the budget's going to be cut because this is a whole separate entity that can't be changed. Now, I'm sure that can all be changed with other policy things that yeah. I'm just not going to touch, but yes, that is the silver lining to it all. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see if, if they can actually get off the ground, can fly to the International Space Station then it just continues to hold the SLS in more and more stark relief of this rocket that may never launch. <laughs> um, and is just the budget just continues to grow. And yet here you go, a couple of years, SpaceX built. I mean, it took, I think it took 16 years for SpaceX to get this finally to a point that it can actually launch human beings into space way beyond the timelines that I think anyone was ever anticipating. And yet they're going to do it in theory again, unless there's a horrible disaster next week. But, but it seems, you know, they've tested every part. The safety features on this are, is a far safer system than the space shuttle ever was. Uh, we've seen it, every piece of it tested quite successfully. Um, so I, I like these odds. Would you, uh, would you fly in it? If, if I had to go to space yeah. and despite, you know, my uh, penchant for space toilets. Um, I don't want to go to space, but if I had to go to space, I would go to space in this. Yeah. Um, Arjun is asking, how much cheaper is this than using the Russians? I don't think it is cheaper. I think, it, I, and I forget the total price for for this. I mean, I think they pay, oh, I don't even remember what they're paying the Russians per per seat. But it's it's millions of millions of yeah, dollars. Yeah, yeah, like twenty They're million. The Russians. Yeah, twenty million, thirty million a seat or something like that. I forget the exact prices, but but this is not about necessarily saving money. This is about and even like the prices for crude. I remember there was an estimate that came out like last year, and the the prices for even Crew Dragon for commercial crew were 
surprisingly high, shockingly high, and <laughs> NASA is paying a lot of money. Like it's like normally you want to fly on a Falcon Nine, yeah, sixty million bucks, and away you go. You want to fly on a Falcon Heavy, ninety million bucks. You know, launch all the Teslas into space that you want to. But um, there you go. Uh, Luke Willem is saying it's eighty million a seat. Uh, Eric is saying it's ninety million a seat. Yeah, so. Um, so it's definitely uh, not cheap, but it gives the United States the ability to launch astronauts into space, which is key because they need to do this. So I think it makes sense. Here's hoping for a safe launch. Yep, here's hoping. <laughs> uh, Alan, <laughs> uh, thanks. And thanks for the, the toilet uh, deep dive. Uh, You're it's a, it's something that I will never say again. Uh, was that train spotting? Alan, what have you got for us? So I found out a while ago that um, there are such a thing as um, X-shaped radio galaxies, uh, which was news to me, but apparently they're quite common, uh, somewhere between 3 and 10% of all active galactic nuclei uh, present an X-shape when you look at them uh, in radio. Um, I mean, we know what an AGN is. Um, well, I'm assuming most people listening have at least heard the term before. You know, it's... Um, when you've got a large, uh, well, when your supermassive black hole has got a large amount of material falling into it, um, it forms that accretion disk and it gets crowded and it gets hot and friction starts shining radiation. And then um, a lot of material ends up getting, yeah, uh, ends up uh, getting ejected into these two jets coming out on either side and you get these, that distinct bar shape. But now some of them uh, show an egg shape and there was always a bit of a mystery. Why? Um, why do you have these two like the cross instead of just the, the, the lines. Um, this is a new image that has come from the, 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 yeah, the trees are showing us that was created by the Meerkat um, uh, radio telescope in South Africa, which is a precursor to the SKA. Um, and it shows that the X shape is a bit more, it's not a cross. It's, it's almost like two boomerangs sort of, um, my hands, I don't know if that's working to show. <laughs> hold on, hold on. There you go. People, now you can show people the... There yeah. you go, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's brought an insight into, into what the, which of the competing theories has explained what's going on there. Um, ideas originally that they have been hypothesized had included that maybe it's two separate jets. So maybe you've got two supermassive black holes orbiting each other, each with its own accretion disk and its own jets. Uh, other theories had been that perhaps the um, the alignment has changed somehow. So what you've got is a jet and then a new jet has just formed next to it. Um, but it turns out that according to this data at least, um, what's really happening is the jet is, the material is shooting out and then it is slowing down uh, as it's colliding with the material within the galaxy itself and falling back in. And as it falls back in, it's so uh, it's it's very magnetically charged because it's all these high energy particles. Uh, it gets magnetically deflected into a new direction, which uh, I don't know about you, but I I had no idea uh, that these things could get so complicated and so interesting. But but there you have it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's great. I mean, these. I mean, another name for a an active galactic nuclei is a quasar, and these are, of course, mm -hmm. these these the actively feeding hearts, the supermassive black holes of the hearts of galaxies that are that are feeding on this material. And as they whip around, they they fire out these jets, and as you say, this material goes out to a certain distance, but then it kind of rains back down onto the galaxy. And in fact, it's considered to be one of the additional ways that you can you can cause star formation to happen to seed mm -hmm. the galaxy parts of the galaxy with with heavier elements and actually encourage some of the the star formation and so it might very well be that that this is is required um but jump out in twitch is noting wondering about the similarity to a to a magnetar it's interesting to see i mean the scale of a supermassive black hole or, or two of these uh you know it, it is millions of times the mass of the sun and yet it's the same sort of idea that you've got these really powerful forces twisting inside, mm. generating enormous magnetic fields, funneling this material into these jets and, and having this material sort of fire off into space. But um, this is... I found it interesting because, uh, I mean, the last time I, I, 
I think a couple of months ago, I was on here and I was talking about a different set of galactic jets where rather than slowing down and falling back in, it just kept on going and it was influencing star formation in another galaxy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it, you can, you can, so, it can literally <laughs> be blasting another galaxy with these jets and do the same job where you're actually mm-hmm. helping to, uh, to create the star formation. Um, yeah, just a stunning, uh, stunning picture. Have you, have you gotten a chance to see the Meerkat Observatory? I have not. No, um, I'd hopes to, and then we got this lockdown. Uh, so I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I well, so I mean, Meerkat is like, as you said, right? Half of the observatories they're going to perform is the square kilometer array. Half of it is in South Africa, and half of it is in Australia. And the Meerkat, I mean, they really did some incredible ideas and really pushed the envelope on what's possible with radio telescopes and really defined a lot of really good ideas that that they, mm-hmm. I think, were able to to show the, the steering committee that they should be placing these telescopes, using this technology and placing these telescopes in in South Africa. It's really astonishing what they've done. I mean, this is brand new stuff. This is We've never seen this kind of resolution before in an image like this. And then to think that this is just a little precursor. It's 64 dishes. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. So, uh, the, the finished SKA is going to be, it's, it's going to span across multiple countries um, with that total collecting area of, of, a, of a square kilometer. I mean, that's yeah. insane. What, what are we going to get from that? It's yeah. incredible. Well, the, 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 uh, the fact that I always like to use is that the, the square kilometer array, when it's finally complete, and you know, we're still a decade away from it being complete, like 2030, I think, um, mm-hmm. it would hear air traffic from Earth at a distance of 100 light years away. Like it would just hear, it would just hear, like it would be able to detect the air traffic control systems on planet Earth. Just the leaked radiation from that far away, which is kind of incredible. So the aliens won't be able to hide is what I'm saying. Once the square kilometer array comes online. It's fantastic. All right. Moya, uh, tell us about this interesting story that you dug up. I dug up. uh, I have no idea where I found it. Um, For the the viewers, the joke here is that I was lazy this week and decided to report on my own paper. So there's that. Um, So when I'm, I'm now about to finish my PhD program. And when I started, I decided that I wanted to write my dissertation on this topic that some people would call the search for the galactic habitable zone. Uh, or, Or if you're familiar with habitable zones around stars being the place where planets can hold life, a galactic habitable zone would be a place in the galaxy where habitable planets are most likely to form. And this field has been alive since the 70s. People have tried to approach it from a lot of different angles, looking at uh, chemical trends throughout the galaxy, looking at supernova rates or looking at um, stellar number density to get a sense of radiation fields. I've decided to look at this from the perspective of galactic dynamics or how the Milky Way is moving around. And this is something that we couldn't have done 10 years ago, even, because we only now have the type of beautiful precise and accurate data on the positions of stars and their motion in the Milky Way galaxy, thanks to missions like Gaia and Hipparchos. Um, So this is something that we're doing for the first time, which is very exciting. But my work specifically was looking at how stars in the Milky Way bulge are moving. And the Milky Way bulge is this uh, kind of spherical, dense part of the Milky Way right in the center. Um, I don't know how many light years it is, but it's like the the two pars the two kiloparsecs around uh, Sag A star, and in the Milky Way bulge, stars are moving really fast. They're not moving on predictable circular orbits, and so they're interacting with each other. We think a lot, or we thought that they were interacting with each other a lot, and I wanted to figure out exactly how often they're having these close stellar flybys. By close flybys, I mean uh, stars coming within 1,000 astronomical units of each other. So I simulated the orbits of a million stars in the galactic bulge, and I counted how often they came in close contact with each other. And it turns out that 80% of stars in the bulge will come within 1,000 AU of another star every billion years. Uh, and that was the 
the right. big takeaway of the paper. It was much more common than we thought it would be. And so what are, what's the implication of, of stars coming within a thousand astronomical units of each other? Yeah, this is where things got tricky. So we very strategically ended the paper there uh, without talking about what the consequences to these uh, planetary systems might be. But uh, it really depends on what the masses of the two stars involved are uh, and like the angle that they approach each other and how fast they're moving by each other. But generally speaking, if you allow me to like just gloss over a lot of particular details. This uh, is just the weekly space hangout. It's fine. Yeah, but this, this is, is not, not your dissertation. Defense. This is not your defense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, hopefully my advisor isn't watching. But um, so in general, these types of close encounters can rip planets away from their host stars. Uh, that's the most extreme consequence. Uh, the next most extreme consequence is that the planet doesn't get ripped away immediately, but its orbit gets destabilized so that uh, maybe a million years later, the planet gets flung away from its system or it gets uh, eaten by its star, it just spirals into its star. Uh, and if this encounter happens early enough, then it can completely disrupt the planet formation process altogether. Um, but like the big consequence of this is that the architecture of planetary systems in the bulge could be very different from the types of planetary systems we see out here in the disk where the sun is. But I know that, like, thanks to some of the recent research from the Gaia spacecraft, they were able to track back and see that, in fact, stars come relatively close to the sun every few tens of thousands of years. And by relatively close, I mean, say, two light years away, which is in the Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of astronomical units. So, but even that has been theorized to, say, disrupt the cometary clouds around these stars and send them inward to to smash into the, into potentially, you know, into the inner solar system. And so in fact, the cause of some of the, and you can imagine at various times, they've come a lot closer than that. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, do, do, would it be possible that the sun has had stars come that close to, to it within a thousand AU? Would we know, would we see that as the, you know, the mm-hmm. impact on the solar system? I think we would see it. Um, We would probably see it in the Oort cloud, which doesn't, to to my knowledge, doesn't look like it's had something actually come within it. Uh, The Oort cloud goes out to, what, like 2,000 AU, something like that, 2,000 to 5,000 AU. Yeah, I think it goes out to two light years. Okay, wow. Um, I mean, if if something like came within a thousand AU of the sun, it would probably completely disrupt the Oort cloud. And we don't see evidence of that. Yeah, it's like people always worry that that a black hole is going to make its way through the inner solar system. And, of course, Mm -hmm. if if one came within many light years of us, it would already start to disrupt the orbits of the the planets. Like, we would know because we wouldn't be here. Right. Just like the poor people who are formed on those – on those those planets in the galactic bulge. Is it similar then to the outcome of – like if you were living in a globular cluster? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so globular clusters are these really dense uh, clusters of stars that can have anywhere from uh, ten, like 1,000 to 10,000 stars in them. And uh, they actually act very similar to the bulge, which is just a little bit denser. And so the, the work that I did other people have done before looking at encounters in globular clusters and found similar encounter rates. Um, But we don't have much observational evidence of this. We also don't have much observational evidence of planets in globular clusters. I think we've found maybe 10 planets in globular clusters. Um, The whole point of my work is that I think rogue planets should be really common in the galactic bulge which by extension should mean that they might be very common in globular clusters as well. But we don't, we just don't have enough observations to confirm or deny that. And, and would they be common because they, they're more likely to form just on their own as a planet in situ in some tiny, teeny, tiny protoplanetary, you know, some little protostellar mm. disk that could only form a, a planet? Or would they be more common because, they've, because of the mayhem? Because of the mayhem, because they they could get ripped away from their stars or their orbits destabilize. 
So what happens next? What's the next part of your research, do you figure? Yeah, so I'm actually taking a step backwards in my research right now and looking at moving groups of stars. Uh, These are stars that aren't anywhere near each other uh, physically. They aren't near each other in position space, but they're moving on similar orbits. So they're they're near each other in, in velocity space or what we call action space. Like their orbits are very similar. And I'm trying to actually identify these moving groups by looking at their motion and pairing that with their chemistry. So if I look at the chemical uh, profiles or the metallicities of the stars that I uh, assign to these different moving groups, then I can get a sense for uh, how the moving group may have formed because there are different mechanisms that can form these groups. Um, But this is still tied to the theme of galactic habitability because if I can understand how clusters of stars move with each other, then that just gives me a better understanding of um, how the Milky Way's motion changes over time. Do you think, I mean, one of the things when you think about, say, habitability or like the the habitable zone of the solar system, you know, it's it's always been this very, um, uh, sort of like a, a very crude calculation where you're just like, these are the places where liquid water can exist. And mm-hmm. therefore this, this planet is in the habitable zone. But really when we look at it, we have to thank plate tectonics, a large moon, um, various compositions of the, of the planet itself, chemical composition, the, the perhaps the necessity of a larger gas giant like Jupiter to either bombard or protect the, how many flares the star itself gives off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it becomes a far more nuanced thing. And I know that with say galactic habitability, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like no planets there, no life there, no life there, but life in the middle because, you know, the right amount of metal, but not too dense. Mm -hmm. But if you start to map out those stars moving around, could you actually maybe say, oh, actually there's probably more habitability over in that region and less in this region. And let's use that as a way to, to, to direct our efforts. Yeah. So you talk about defining the habitable zone around stars as crude. And I think when you start talking about galactic habitability, it's even cruder. Yeah. Uh, People have uh, kind of defined the galactic habitable zone for the Milky Way as this annulus that's between seven and nine kiloparsecs away from the galactic center and outside of spiral arms so that you're not in a super dense environment. And that's like our sun is smack dab in the middle of that. We're eight kiloparsecs. From the galactic what center. a surprise. Yeah. Here we are in <laughs> the center of the universe again. Yeah, exactly. We're so special and so lucky, uh, but, but we actually are. Um, I, I think introducing the idea of motion into it doesn't do much out here in the Milky Way disk because things are moving on such circular orbits. Um, for the most part, there, there's some uh, perturbation from that, but uh, we're mostly moving on circular orbits. And so uh, the the environment where you form your planetary system uh, might be on the different side of the galaxies from the galaxy from where you are now, but it's because it's at the same radius, it's still roughly the same type of environment. So I don't think motion does much out here in the disc. Right, right, right. Um, when I'm, I'm assuming you've been all over the Gaia data. When does the next big data dump come? Do you know? Uh, no one knows. Uh, I think originally it was gonna, so the last one came out in 2018 Yeah, and that was the second data release. The third data release was going to be a really big one. It was going to be an even bigger step between the second and third data release than there was between the first and second. And that was scheduled to come out in like 2023, 2024. Okay. Um, probably 2023. And because of coronavirus, it's being pushed back. Uh, the f- very final data release, the fourth data release for Gaia was scheduled for late 2025. And now we just really don't know when things are going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the fact that those, those upcoming data releases will give many more stars, potentially planets, um, mm-hmm. and all kinds of other really interesting objects. Like I can't think of a mission that I'm more excited about. Than, yeah, me too. Than Gaia. The- the thing I'm most excited about uh, Gaia releasing in its final data release is the time series photometry data uh, or uh, 
time series astrometry data. So giving us um, information about how the stars are moving over time, uh, but in like, uh, I don't know how to say it any better than time series. Um, Instead of just saying the star has moved this much in the last four years, it'll tell us how much it has moved like every few weeks. And so you could, you could map, you could then run the, universe or run the Milky Way backwards and forwards and watch how all the stars moved around each other in all of their different orbits, which is... Or we could finally detect and confirm the first planet using astrometry, which would be very exciting. Yes. Yes, please. Yeah. Using a technique where you, I mean, if I understand, you're like watching them face on because they're like yanking their planets or their stars in little circles. Yeah, so the radial velocity method and the astrometry method are very similar because they both depend on watching how a star moves by being pulled by a planet's gravity. Uh, But it's just, you've said it right, like a face-on view instead of an edge-on view of the system. Yeah, so you're seeing the radial velocity, but on a completely different point of view, which is wonderful because it's the ones that we, I mean, it's amazing to think, uh, how few of the planetary systems we can actually see. They're like 1%. Like it's not a lot, but suddenly right. when we can see them face on, maybe we can see many more. So that's going to be the sleeper hit of Gaia is going to be like, oh, and here's 100,000 planets. <laughs> Just <laughs> right? like overnight. Overnight, much. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, once James Webb is operational, here are a few targets for you to take a look at. So yeah, um, awesome. Well, congratulations. When, when if you... I mean, assuming that life gets to return somehow back to normal, um, when do you get your PhD? When do I get to call you Dr. McTeer? Um, December is the goal. Um, but I I might choose to extend to May so that I don't give up a, a steady paycheck and health insurance. Right. Well, got to let you know, 100% of Weekly Space Hangout co-hosts have gotten their doctorates, have successfully defended and, and awesome. gotten their doctorate. So we have a 100% success rate so far. With, I will not screw that up for yeah, you, with I the, with, with the two people who have done it beforehand. <laughs> so, yeah, with both Kimberly and Morgan came in as master's students and, and came out the other side uh, getting their PhDs, which was great. Awesome. Okay, well, so we've got, we're going to probably run today's show a little bit shorter, but I just wanted to give you one interesting update, which is that we got an announcement this week that SpaceX is now planning to put their sunshade on all future Starlink satellites. And, of course, the big problem with Starlink is that they are very bright, not necessarily bright to the unaided eye, but they are bright to looking in a, in, you know, for the big telescopes, especially, say, the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is going to have multiple Starlink passes in almost every image that it takes. Starlinks are, say, magnitude 6, so they're just in the limits of what you can see with your unaided eye, but that's really bright for a telescope. They uh, they were able to paint them black, maybe to get the magnitude down to like I think six point eight, but it looks like this. They've got these visors, these sunshades that they put on them, and this looks like a a pretty effective way to bring down the the brightness. So so far, there's five hundred Starlinks which are at their current brightness, but from this point forward, every launch will have more of these Starlinks with this visor, and this was done completely to minimize their impact on really on astronomy, which is nice to see them taking it this seriously. And hopefully this is the beginning and there will be other techniques that will be figured out over time. But that first 500, we're stuck with them in their current level of brightness. Of course, they do have a limited lifetime. They'll probably only last about five years before they start to burn up in the atmosphere. So we've got about five years. Now, when you look at the timeline, there will be overlap between Vera Rubin and the and some of these bright uh, starlings. So um, hopefully, you know, especially in these times, right, where everyone's working from home <clears throat> and those of us who have good internet are have an advantage over the people who have to work from home in places with terrible internet. And this is what Starlink will do is provide people who have terrible internet, who are in the, who are in the more rural parts of the world, get access to as high-speed internet as anyone else. <clears throat> but, of course, these are SpaceX's promises. We're going to wait for the reality. But it's nice to see that they're committing to installing these darkening visors on every single one of their upcoming uh, Starlinks. So I just wanted to give everybody an update on that. I, was I just curious. thought of the most horrible conspiracy theory. Yeah? Ooh. 
that that Starlink created coronavirus so that people would have to work from home yeah. and rely on their internet. That no. lovely. No. That's monstrous. No. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> like I said, the most horrible the conspiracy. The most horrible theory. conspiracy theory. Well, if we see it start to go run rampant on the internet, we'll we'll remember where it started. We're gonna have Twitter put little fact check thing beside everything you say from here on out. <laughs> I was curious to know, um, you know, we, all the visual observers have been complaining about what Stalink has done to the sky. Have 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 we heard anything from the radio astronomers? They're the worst off. And they're I mean what but but they're, you know, they have been getting uh, sort of abused by satellites for uh, decades. I mean, uh, a lot mm. of the times, the we saw a presentation when we were at the American Astronomical Society from a radio astronomer talking about this, and that is a that is a problem that has already happened that there are in fact there are specific weather satellites that as they go overhead and they beam down they can actually burn out the sensors of the radio telescopes as they are blasting directly down at the uh at the sensors so unfortunately the there's no easy way because these things are literally broadcasting in the zone that's the thing that you can't block so uh, yeah. unfortunately, they're going to have to do a workaround where, as they as they head over uh, radio quiet zones, they'll have to turn off when they do this. But that's been negotiated in the past, so um, I don't see it being like like with the, just the physical reflective brightness of these of these satellites. You can't really turn that off as they head mm. over top of the Vera Rubin Observatory, for example, and then let them you know shine again. But with the radio telescopes, they can absolutely turn off all their transmitters when they're going over a place that's more sensitive and then turn them back on again. But if, you know, you've got people in New Mexico who live right around the array, the very large array, and they're trying to do, they want to be able to access the internet, and the very large array wants to have a radio quiet zone, then you're going to have, you're going to run into those problems. But we're going to definitely see, say, for example, when the Starlinks go into China, when they fly above China, they're going to have to turn themselves off. Or there's going to be trouble. Uh, so I think we're going to see continuing negotiations with SpaceX and the needs of astronomers. All right, uh, Alan, you're on my screen right now. So uh, let us know what you're working on and where people can find out more. You know, every time I'm on here, I make this elaborate promise that the new season of the Urban Astronomer podcast is coming out. I did it. I did it uh, just two days ago. <laughs> That's Season awesome. three started. Yeah. yeah. Yay, right on. Uh, yeah, it was lovely. It was an interview with um, uh, a professor of education uh, that I've known for a while. Um, so, And his interest is astronomy in science education. And we chatted a bit about the state of education in, in South Africa and how um, science outreach can, can work. Very interesting. Um, yeah, go find it at urban-astronomer.com. I enjoyed recording it and maybe you'll like listening to it. Fantastic. Uh, Moya? If people want to find out more, uh, I've, we'll put a link to your uh, actual paper in the show notes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Um, you can find me on Twitter. My handle's GoAstroMo. Uh, and I have been working on my own podcast. Uh, it's called ExoLore, and it's all about facts-based fictional world building, where I imagine what the life and culture might be like on alien planets. That is so cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Any. So you usually can find me overdoing CosmoQuest stuff. So that's twitch.tv slash CosmoQuestX. There's a YouTube channel. There's a Twitter. There's all sorts of things. Um, we go back to streaming next week. So I'll be streaming again starting next week. You guys week. took a week off? Yes, for Memorial Day. We just took the whole week off. Yeah, that's smart. It's It's hard to sort of like try to move around. I've done this a couple of times where I'm just like, you know what? I'm not going to do any work this week and just curl up yeah, the ball. And especially just, yeah. with like daily content and we're trying to make sure we keep community coffee going. So that yeah. means twice a day streaming. It's, it's a lot. It really it's is. a lot. I don't understand. It's funny. Pamela always used to say, I don't know how Fraser does. It. I don't know. I don't know when he sleeps. I don't know how he, work, you know, gets all this done. I don't do a fraction now of the stuff <laughs> that you guys do. So Turns out because I'm the we're slacker. a team. Yeah, we're out. a team. Yeah, I've got a team. 
<laughs> so it turns out turns out I'm the slacker, but good. Uh, yeah, definitely go and check out all the stuff that's happening over on uh, on the Cosmo Quest, both on the website and on the Twitch stream. You guys are doing incredible work, and I keep saying that. You know, it's so funny. You could just see the moment Pamela started to be dealing with news every day, like her just, you know, because I my job is to report on the news. I'm always up, up to speed on all the new advances that I would be informing her. And now it's completely flipped around again. She's like, did you hear about this piece of research? I'm like, like it just came out like four hours ago. So no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you guys are doing great work. And uh, I, we definitely, if you haven't already, you should subscribe to Cosmo Quest. Um, we are going to be doing another virtual star party on Sunday night uh, at 9 p.m. Pacific times. So just remember, it's one hour later. And that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is so that we can have telescopes operate at night and not in the daytime, in the sun, in the sort of fading light of the day. So, uh, but we had a great star party on Sunday night last week. We saw a lot of really great galaxies that that I haven't ever tried to turn a telescope on, and it was uh, surprising. We got the whale. We got comet pan stars. We got a bunch of the you know, M fifty one, M one hundred one, a lot of the classic galaxies. Sombrero galaxy. It was uh, the Owl Nebula. It was a really good time. So if you want to just come hang out for a couple of hours while we run a telescope live, uh, you should join me on my channel on the Virtual Star Party. All right, I'm going to put everybody back up on the screen. There we all are. Thank you, everybody, for watching us today, both on YouTube and on Twitch. Thank you to all of the moderators and especially Nancy Graziano for uh, organizing uh, everything. And thanks to my co-hosts once again for joining me here on the Internet to share the science. And we'll see some of you uh, next week. Thanks, everybody. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio prose production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.